106.5 WFMP, this is Community Control Now. Vincent Gonzalez bringing you the latest on what's going on around the way. We just had a dope time. October 8th, we had our vegan breakfast teaching. A lot of good work was shared. Shout out to everybody who made this thing possible. We're just going to share with you some highlights. First off, myself and my Food Not Bombs homie, Alex. We're going to start with our talk about veganism. I was an off and on vegetarian vegan for like 10 years. Prior to this, you know, watch some spooky Netflix documentary, get scared, you know what I mean? And then I'm like, oh, I gotta do something. And then, um, and then it's right back to it because, you know, the, uh, the food industrial complex doesn't set these things up for us to, uh, you know, doesn't make it so where it's accessible. And, you know, in particular, blighted areas, I like that term food apartheid, you know? It's, it's, it's by design that Things are, things are um, carried out in such a way. Um, so was doing it mostly as a diet, and it didn't really click for me until I realized that, um, well, that's the nature of things. You know, you start and stop, figure it out along the path. And also, veganism is not a diet. It's an ethical framework that seeks to end the exploitation of all sentient beings. All right, so anybody who knows me in here, you know I don't shut up about it. Uh, but, um, you know, just want to give a little clarity on um, why this is a lifestyle that I've tried. Um, I like to call it a tri-variable. three main reasons why uh, I'm a vegan. Number one, it's bad for your health. Consensus nutritional science has proved that many of the top ten killers of American heart disease, certain cancers, diabetes, can be arrested and in many cases reversed by greatly reducing and or eliminating the consumption of animal products. Okay, so, and I think about my people, man, marginalized folk here, um, the notorious food apartheid system that we're under and been subjected to has caused a lot of health disparities, and we have to think about that as it pertains to justice and what do people deserve in this life. So, um, it was kind of like a, a, a repel against a white supremacist capitalist superstructure. In so many ways, you know, it's, just, it's beyond just the food we eat. It's like how we experience our environment. Number two, bad for the environment. If you care about this planet, you have an obligation to examine the role that the animal factory farming industry plays in the destruction of the planet. Of all the stats that they got out there, you know, you get one of them spooky Netflix documentaries to get you in. But um, this is the one that kind of set out to me the most. Um, you know, typically they say, okay, save the planet. They tell you go ride a bike or something. Combine every, all the, the greenhouse gas emissions of every mode of transportation on earth, and it only equals up to 75% of the factory farm industry. Okay, so like we have to, once again, examine how we, you know, what role we take in these things. And, um, you know, be critical about our stewardship to the land. You know, we gotta, we gotta be in sync with it. You don't get one planet, so bad for your health, bad for your environment. And number three, I had to examine the fact, and this is why it took me so long to kind of start and stop, man. I had to examine the fact that I was eating animals, and I'm an animal, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, real talk. I know, you know, I know science isn't a high primary in Kentucky, but you know what I mean? Just putting, I didn't, you know, I had to put that two and two together on that. Like, man, I'm an animal, and I'm eating animals, you know what I mean? So it's like, if I call myself principal, you know what I'm, 
These things mean, you know, these words mean something. If I call myself principled in my fight against unjust and oppressive systems, I have a decision to make about the role in which I partake in it. All right, I, I decided to dedicate the rest of my life to the solemn task of ending, ending needless suffering wherever it may lie. All right, so this is a quote that I got. Um, who's your man? Who's your man from Facebook? Tamil? Yeah, I'm going to credit, I'm gonna credit uh, them on this, man. So I'm not trying to do the animals the way white people did my ancestors. So I had to sit on that, man. And um, I'll leave you with the words of a vowed vegan and liberationist, Dr. Angela Davis. I think there's a connection between the way we treat animals and the way we treat people who are at the bottom of the hierarchy. I sometimes am really disappointed that many of us can assume that we're these radical activists, but we don't know how to reflect on the food that we put in our bodies and we don't realize the extent in which we are implicated in the whole process of capitalism and by participating uncritically in the food politics offered us by the great corporations. Great in quotation marks. I think it's a part of a revolutionary perspective. How we not only discover more compassionate relations with human beings, but how we can develop compassion, compassionate relations with the other creatures we share the planet with. So I'm um, going to put on. My homie Alex is going to put on to, uh, you doing like the ethical framework of veganism? Or? Yeah, okay. Yeah, you're so relaxed, man. I got to like, yeah, get, get on your but you got it, yeah. I've been, I've been cooking pancakes for an yeah. hour and a half, so if you see. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not bragging. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, it is the longest I've ever cooked pancakes before. So, well, thank you, thank you, and so yeah, if, if you see, I'm typically not covered in, in pancake batter either, so, uh, typically not, typically not. Um, I'm just going to say a few, I'm just going to add on a little bit to what Ben said. I, I came to, to veganism as an anti-capitalist, and I see uh, lots of different, I think I see some labor shirts out there, I think I see some different community shirts. I'm assuming a lot of people in this room are critical of capitalism, uh, to say the least. So I, so I, I came to veganism as um, an anti-capitalist, as someone who was thinking about human liberation movements. And for many years, I didn't think about the aspect of how we humans treat other animals. And it's interesting. I wanted to just uh, talk a little bit about what Vince said about the, the word animal. Um, yes, human beings are in the animal family. We're, we're mammals. We're related to... Lots of different animals that we see every day, right? Raccoons, squirrels, our dogs, our cats. We're in, the same, we're in the same animal family. But we use that term, which I believe is an extremely socially constructed term, to define other individuals, because anim fellow animals are individuals, as having less moral relevance than humans. So I think it's a, it's a very anthropocentric uh, viewpoint. And also, uh, white nationalism and white supremacy movements have always defined certain groups of people as either animals or animal-like, whether it's uh, LGBTQ plus people, women, disabled people, people of color, etc. They've all been defined as animal-like by white nationalists, white supremacists, and you hear it today. You hear people on AM talk radio, our Trump supporters, or Trump himself, they, they say the word, these thugs, these animals. You know, they, so the, the term is still used to describe individuals, whether human or not, who have less moral relevance. And I think that's a key component of veganism. That's why I came to veganism. And I don't like making too many assumptions, but I do assume, based on the anecdotal 
interactions that I have with people that most people don't actually know what veganism is. They think it's this bourgeois consumer choice. And there is a version of that, which it is. There's, there's, lots, of, uh, there's lots of affluent white folks that tell people that they have to eat a certain thing and that this is a dietary thing. Vince already elaborated on that, that it's not only a diet. And I really like, it's not a, it's not a complete definition, but the first group, the vegan society, that, that use the term veganism. There, there have always been vegans, but the first group that actually started to call themselves vegans, they, they use this definition, and I, I want to add a little bit to it because I don't think it's perfect, but I do like it. There's some critical phrases in it. It's, it. It states that veganism is a philosophy and a way of living which seeks to exclude as far as is possible and practicable, and I think those are key components. All forms of exploitation of and cruelty to animals for food, clothing or any other purpose and by extension promotes the, the development and use of animal free alternatives for the benefits of animals, humans and the environment. In dietary terms, it denotes the practice of dispensing with all products derived wholly or partly from animals. So I think the, the, the key phrase is practicable and possible. A lot of people say, I can't afford to, to do this or I can't do this medically or I don't have a lot of choice in my, whether you're houseless, you're, you're poor, whether you're a prisoner, uh, whether you are disabled, whether you're living on Social Security. So there's lots of reasons that you have, a, a, there's a spectrum of choice in what we consume and what we wear, obviously, as humans. So if you have more privilege, obviously you have more choice. And so that practicable and possible phrase, to me, is key. You don't necessarily, it, this sounds contradictory to people, you don't necessarily have to eat 100% plant-based diet even to be a vegan. If you're about the abolition of what we call speciesism, speciesism being the, the, the oppression that affects individuals based upon their species, saying we can unnecessarily use this species for food, but we don't use this species for food, et cetera. So if, if, you're, if you're interested in, in trying to abolish that and you're interested in, in, in a politics that is, is interested in organizing around that, pressure campaigns, et cetera, that's veganism. It's not just what we do in our daily lives, which focuses as a, as a boycott of sorts. It's, it's a lot like the, uh, I, I also, I, I observe the, the boycotts, the boycott and divestment and sanction movement to, um, in regards to Israel-Palestine, if you're familiar with that. And, and I, I look at it as, we, we don't only uh, boycott products that are made in the occupied territories in Gaza and West Bank, et cetera. But we, if, if you care about that, you also do other work about organizing and standing in solidarity with Palestinians. And veganism is much the same way in that regards where the, the aspect of extricating yourself where you can, where it's practic practicable and possible, from those systems of domination that hurt other animals and exploit other animals in every capacity. It's about doing what you can. Uh, so I, I just wanted to say a couple notes on that and let's see what else we can stay here. Yeah, so another term that you might hear vegan, vegans use, um, particularly anti-capitalist vegans that are interested in the broader scope of, of collective liberation, we use the term total liberation a lot. And what that means is it's extending um, anti-capitalist, like in many senses, um, either a socialist, anarchist, or Marxist point of view, to also ecology and to, to fellow animals, to other animals. So it's about extending those principles that probably a lot of people in this room are familiar with, that I just mentioned, those liberation-based uh, philosophies, to fellow animals and the environment. So we use that term. And I, I would just say that, that there is, like, like I talked about in the beginning, there is a version of, of what people call veganism, which is alienating to a lot of people. And I think that a lot of people on the left know that version and they dislike it, and I dislike that version of it too. But when they hear it, they think that's what veganism is, and they think people are trying to, uh, to gatekeep them and, 
and, uh, and tell them to go buy expensive foods, and that's not at all what veganism is. So I just wanted to say a few words about it and talk about uh, what, what veganism is and isn't, and the notion that, that veganism is really something that is accessible to all people because the very basis of it is about what's practicable and possible, and extending the view of collective liberation to, to other sentient individuals, not just humans. So that's all I have to say, and um, if anybody wants to talk, I'll be here for a while about it. I know it's, uh, I know probably a lot of people in this room are skeptical of veganism, I would imagine. I would, I, I would imagine that. So if, if you want to have an individual conversation with me, I'm happy to do it. You are listening to 106.5 WFMP, Community Control Now. Next up, we got Party for Socialism and Liberations talk about abolishing the Supreme Court. So, hi, y'all. As he introduced earlier, my name is Jer. I'm with the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Uh, we're a you know, explicitly socialist party that believes that to e or from each according to their ability and to each according to their need. What I'll be talking about today is looking at the U.S. Uh, government structure and the Supreme Court and why it is fundamentally undemocratic. So let's sort of give some history here. On uh, June 24th of this year, the Supreme Court overturned the only federal protection of a women's democratic right to abortion. For the American people, this decision was shocking, considering at least 57% of people disagree with the Supreme Court, and at least 62% support abortion in all or most cases. On top of that, the Supreme Court is now calling into question Obergefell v. Hodges and Griswold v. Connecticut, challenging the right to marriage and the right to contraceptives. In times like these, it's easy to succumb to passivity or trust in the democratic institutions the US claims to have in place. But when the Supreme Court references ideas like constitutional values or the desires of the founding fathers, uh, we see the US state isn't failing its democratic principles, it's defending the capitalist foundation the empire was built on. If we look at the Constitution, we see it was written and framed by just 55 white landowning men a fraction of a fraction of the U.S. population in 1787 and a fraction of the fraction of the U.S. population today. The Constitution of the United States of America is the oldest constitution of its kind Western powers still use today. This decrepit and dying document has been artificially kept alive by the dictatorship of the capitalist class. As the codifying document laying out the structure of the U.S. state, the U.S. Constitution secured the rights of wealthy white slave owners living on colonized land and laid the groundwork for the anti-democratic empire we struggle against today. Most notably in this struggle is the fight against the U.S. Supreme Court, a body of six to ten elites elected by their fellow elites with lifetime appointments to the supreme uh, interpreters and guidance of the U.S. state's legal framework. Cloaked in the premise of checks and balances, uh, the Supreme Court has ensured that Congress upholds the constitutional values the slave traders who wrote the document envisioned. Mm. Throughout the U.S. state's history, the ruling class has fought to build a nation whose purpose is to protect the private property of wealthy elites. This began with the Three-Fifths Compromise and Article I, Section 9's laissez-faire capitalist approach to the slave trade limiting the taxation of the nation's most profitable industry at the time. The decision went even further so as to assert that even free states 
must treat escaped slaves as private property and forcibly return escaped slaves to the people the U.S. state called owners, thus asserting slavery as the law of America. But despite the efforts of the slave-owning class, the abolitionist struggle continued to fight back uh, with efforts like John Brown's armed uprising at Harper's Ferry in West Virginia. The explosion of U.S. capitalism with powerful trusts and corporations emerging on the scene, and second, the northern political establishment, anxious to absorb the recently defeated slaveocracy into their ranks, crushing the Reconstruction era in 1877 and ushering in an era of Jim Crow apartheid and KKK terror. And who do we have to thank in our government for this counter-revolutionary assault but the U.S. Supreme Court? By 1886, historian Howard Zinn, author of The People's History of the United States, writes the Supreme Court had accepted the argument that corporations were persons and their money and property were protected by the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. In fact, between 1868 and 1912, the Supreme Court based 604 decisions on the 14th Amendment. Of those 604, 312 dealt with corporations, 312. In the mere 28 that dealt with the rights of African Americans, the Supreme Court ruled In 1896, the Supreme Court ruled that, Ples or in the case of Plessy v. Ferguson, that separate but equal facilities for black riders on railroad cars were legal. Jim Crow had gotten its legal stamp of approval. In 1944, as continues into the 20th century, the Supreme Court even ruled in the case of Korematsu versus the United States that it was the constitutional right for the U.S. president to sign an executive order rounding up 110,000 Americans and placing them in concentration camps. At this point, you're all probably asking yourselves, how is this possible? Uh, to answer this, we have to first remember what we said earlier about the uh, Supreme Court. It's a body of elites elected by elites whose job is to ensure Congress upholds constitutional values, a document which doesn't even contain the word democracy. With constitutional values in mind, it comes as no surprise that the US uh, Supreme Court enforces racist, classist, and sexist policies. In the 20th century, returning to Franklin Roosevelt, he appointed Hugo Black as Supreme Court Justice. And let's learn a little bit about Hugo Black. In the 1920s, Black was a member of the KKK in Alabama. While he claimed that he was never an ideological adherent to the Klan, biographer Robert K. Newman notes that Black could not have had any illusions about the group he joined. Illegal Klan activities were part of daily life in Birmingham. The current Chief Justice, John G. Roberts, was appointed by George Bush in 2005 a Bush-type ideologue. He's on the record uh, saying he's against women's reproductive rights, affirmative action, and voting civil rights. Referring to the Roe v. Wade decision of 1973 legalizing abortion, he said that it was wrongly decided and should be overruled. Of the people when the ruling class fears that it must make concessions in order to maintain its overall position of domination in society. It has made such concessions in the face of mass movements in the United States, as well as in response to revolutionary developments around the world. In 1954, the Brown v. Board of Education ruling abolished the Plessy v. Ferguson separate but equal ruling, 
ordering the desegregation of schools in Topeka, Kansas. At the time, civil rights organizing was picking up momentum when the Chinese Revolution was inspiring decolonization struggles around the world. The US government feared losing more than just an end to separate but equal. But it wasn't the Supreme Court that dismantled the racist apartheid state that existed in the southern half of the United States. It was the explosion of the civil rights struggle, the largest mass movement in US history. So what can we do to uh, fight against the Supreme Court's ruling? What is to be done? Namely, abolish capitalism. And lastly, closing this thing out, it's the kids you know well, Community Control Now, talking about the eight-point plan. There's a, a, a view that says, actually, fascism started not in Germany with Hitler or Mussolini and any of that, but in the colonial period of America. It wasn't called fascism, you know, they called it slavery and a bunch of other things, but, um, you know, when we look at the whole notion of fascism and what it meant even in the mid-20th century, you know, the enslavement of uh, Jewish people and the extermination, all of that was happening in colonial America in the, what, 15th? Well, actually, first settlement started in the 16th century, you know, all the way up until um, today. So, when we look at fascism, we look at colonial, the roots of that in colonial America. Anything that happened afterwards was actually building on what um, had already happened in colonial America and in other places. And part of that type of fascism called slavery were police, were um, patrols, slave patrols. That was the beginning of policing in the United States or what would become the United States. And so when we talk about policing, which is one of the ways and the reasons why community control now began, was to try to get a grip on that apparatus of policing is because it started off on the wrong foot. You know, we can't reform the police. We've got to abolish policing as we know it. And that's one of the principal uh, tenets of community control now. Uh, um, same time, uh, there was the suppression of the indigenous uprisings. It wasn't to maintain law and order. Of course, you know, maintaining law and order is an important function of any state, but you know, in the United States context, it was about suppressing slave uprisings and suppressing the indigenous uprisings. Now, of course, as time went on, their functions expanded. You know, uh, they had the task of suppressing labor struggles. Um, we uh, eventually attended a, a talk by Dan Cannon, is that his name? Dan Cannon, yeah. Over right mm -hmm. up here at the library, who wrote a book on plea bargaining, in which he points out that in the 1800s, the 19th century, uh, one of the concerns of the ruling class um, in suppressing all of the constituencies or uh, forces that they needed to suppress was finding an excuse to lock people up, which meant you had to 
write laws that people would violate or easily violate, so you'd have an excuse to lock them up. Also to touch on, you were familiar with this in your time, COINTELPRO, mm. the use of uh, suppressing any sort of black liberation dissent, um, Stonewall riots, mm -hmm. what they did there. So, you know, um, there's, there's a lot of propaganda around who the good guys are, who's fighting for the side of truth and justice. Mm -hmm. And um, we're just hoping that with community control, we can gain the kind of balance of scales in, in its own way. We've got to understand that we are in a class struggle. Now that class struggle includes a lot of different social contradictions, but within that class struggle, we have uh, black people who are selling us out. You know, I mean, in spite of the unprecedented uprisings that occurred in 2020 and afterwards, uh, we were talking about this earlier, um, there has been, and we've got to understand this, there's been a trend to suppress all of that and make sure that never happens again since that was an unprecedented uprising. I talk to Vincent all the time about, you know, growing up in the 60s and seeing all those uprisings. This was bigger in 2020, but it wasn't apparently as organized. Greater numbers, but uh, because of a lack of organization, a lot of the, the uprising was spontaneous. Um, it wasn't guided by any kind of principles. So it's been easy to co-opt it and redirect it, you know, into you know being just another part of you know feeding the nonprofit industrial yeah. complex. And, and we know that power can seize nothing without a demand. So we've couched community control as we see it into an eight-point plan. And the eight-point plan goes as such: number one, we take that out of his hands. We, we ask for a nominal election. Um, no more than a couple hundred just to take the powers um, out of the ruling class of this town's hands. Number two, we're asking for budget and policy oversight. All right, don't play cute with us, do one of your backroom deals at the tap room and all of that. We want to see everything that's going on. Decoupling the budget, learn this about uh, from No LMPD. Shout out to them. Uh, this town all the little cute tricks that they do, man. Anyway, um, they place the LMPD budget all coupled together with other Metro services. So it's in there with the zoo and- uh, Yeah, what's that? Libraries. Libraries. And, and we know these things to be completely separate episodes of Charles in Charge. But they, you know, they play real cute with us. They, they I don't know if they assume we don't know or whatever it is, but we on to them. We got their cap. Number three, we want subpoena power. You're going to have to raise your right hand and talk into the microphone here. Ain't going to be no internal investigation. My guys down at the precinct got it. No, we're done with that. The ability to fire any officer through the misconduct. This is this uh, review board that we're wanting here. All right. Run down the rest of the list here. Open investigations. All right. This that sunlight being a disinfected here. And we also want to expand the investigations. When I started doing my research and seeing all the different things, many forms of sexual assault allegations are not considered uh, worthy of any further 
review and just so many other things. Um, open FOP contracts. You got to run that by us before you, you know, cut a deal with your cartel. We're not, you know, we, we're talking about power and who really holds it. And then our last demand here is uh, no Leos, no law enforcement officers on this board. I think we've seen enough. All right. It's, we're talking about power to the people came out and um, shared in this time. Man, I hope that like everybody was here that we we picked up a thing or two from each other and um, couldn't have did this without my community. But we hope this to be like more of many. Man, I put the rest of my life on this, you know, like this is what I'm going to do. So you'll see more of me as we get into this. And we hope to just grow this thing out, man. We're going to hit the ground organize and um, let the games begin, as they say. Shout out to how we, how we break the show down at the end here. Shout out to all the political prisoners, Mumia Abu-Jamal, Leonard Peltier, and so many others, Julian Assange. Uh, Brittany Griner. Brittany Griner, we haven't heard anything about that recently. I mean all political prisoners out here, man. Everybody fighting in the struggle, we ain't forgot about y'all. Community Control Now signing off.